One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading another episode from the Unconventional Soldier podcast, which aims to record the history of the British Army's ST Patrols unit through the voices of the veterans who serve in its ranks. Today we're talking to John Holden, who is a troop commander and then battery commander on Optelic in Iraq. And we'll be talking about that deployment and the role of STA patrols on this enduring coalition operation against the so-called global war on terror. Telic 2 was immediately after the war phase, and it was believed that this would have marked the start of a more supportive, stabilising and rebuilding period, but it is actually the start of a violent and bloody insurgency. And in some ways, Iraq has become overshadowed by Operic in Afghanistan, but there was some tough fighting over this period that equalled and in some cases surpassed the violence in Afghan. As normal, we'll finish off with Desert Island Debts, which is John's choice of book, film and luxury item. So John, thanks for coming on the podcast, and we'll commence with your military backstory leading up to the Telic deployment. Um, well, first of all, it, it's great to be here and talking to uh, you two again. Um, without um, complimenting you too much, you were both very much part of my 473 battery career. Um so my military career started off in September 91. I'd been in the officer training corps when I was at university, but I went to Sandhurst in September 91 and joined my first unit in October 92. Graduates in those days only actually served six months at Sandhurst. Uh, my unit was 10 SA Air Defence Battery, which in those early days was part of 40 Regiment Royal Artillery. Uh, but that moved in December of 1992 to join up with 47 Regiment Royal Artillery as an air defence, close air defence regiment. I stress that part because it was my time in 10 Battery that really exposed me to 473 Battery as we were all part of the Dramat Rulemont Battalion tour to Northern Ireland in 94-95 because our battery was attached to 5 Regiment for that tour. 
Uh, and this coupled with one of my instructors at Sandhurst being from 473, you put those together and my appetite was wet. Um, my time in 10 Battery ended in, uh, after the completion of that tour in April 95, and I was looking for my next job. Uh, my first choice was Ford Ob's Observation Officer. Uh, my preference was 2-9 Commando, uh, but there were no vacancies, so I, I asked for 473. Um, I joined in the summer of 95 and went straight on to the winter's course that year. Um, and again, I, 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 think I'm, I think I'm correct, but you will correct me if I'm wrong, that um, myself and another officer at that time on that course were the first to complete the whole course, whereas I know you're shaking head, Kevin. I'm not sure if, if we did the whole course or before that, or they just did the selection week. Okay. Anyway, I served in the battery as troop commander and battery captain until 97. Uh, when I went to Army Junior Division for staff training and then I returned to the regiment in 98 to serve as the adjutant until 2000. So I finally left the regiment after five years and went to Germany with HQ uh, 1st Armoured Division as their SO2 target. And I left there to go to India for a year from May 2002 until May 2003. I picked up the post of battery commander while I was out there and I returned three weeks before the battery was due to deploy on Telic 2. So, John, are you from a military family? No, uh, strangeness, not at all. Uh, my, I come from a, a family of bakers. I'm the first of my family line, so uh, I don't really know what motivated me to join, but it, it certainly wasn't uh, a sense of family duty. Now, General Stone, when he's on his podcast, he did a stint as a baker before he joined the army. So you're, you're, you've got a good lineage there, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. So, Kev, do you want to cover off a little bit about the Gulf War then before we sort of move on to the main part of the pod? Yeah. In 2003, um, Optelic or Gulf War Two, depending on how you remember it, which, which, as you mentioned, has been overshadowed by the, the Afghan campaign, and was one of the largest deployments of British forces since World War Two. And obviously there was loads of forces in the Middle East already because we had um, the RAF out there because they were doing the Operation North, North and Southern Overwatch. And that was a legacy from Gulf War One. It must have increased. It, it was larger or in the same size as Op Granby as a British contingent and as a coalition. It was far greater than Op Corporate or the Falklands campaign. And it was on par with the Suez deployments as well. And... Huge, a huge build-up, a huge deployment onto an operative one, and then it, that led them to a subsequent operation. So, Telic as an operation lasted from 2003 to 2011. So, it's, so it wasn't on a amount of time. And during that period, it's all 179 uh, British armed forces uh, died during that campaign. And if you remember the news, there was thousands of Americans killed out there as well as part of the coalition. It was, it was massive. And there was a report came out in March 2007 that over 2,000 British soldiers or service personnel are returned from Iraq suffering some form of mental illness, including PTSD. So, um, yeah, a massive campaign. We, we, we do forget that. So, John, can you outline the deployment of the battery on Telic, its involvement in the ground campaign, and also what it meant for the future of the unit and its continued struggle for survival and relevance during the various strategic defence reviews? Um yeah, so um, as I said in my intro, I I returned to the regiment just before the battery was due to deploy on Telic 2, uh, literally three weeks before. And as usual, my immediate impression was that nothing uh, nothing had changed. I, I recall popping into the commanding officer's office 
on my first day back as a, just a matter of uh, courtesy. I'd literally flown in from India and I just wanted to pay my respects. And it, it became immediately clear that any chance I had of, of taking some leave was, was gone if I was going to have any involvement on that, on the final prep of the battery applied to its deployment. The start of my assignment as battery commander wasn't really a happy one, uh, if I'm honest, and I, I uh, certainly not how officers would envisage those first days when they take over command of a unit that they really wanted to command. I recall being shown a letter by the commanding officer which basically said that the uh, days of the battery were numbered uh, in its current role uh, and that the preference was to convert it to a weapon locating battery which is obviously where the, the strategic priority was at that time. And I, and I know previous threads in earlier podcasts show that this was this was nothing new, but the tone and the seniority of the author suggested that this time, you know, our backs really were up against the wall uh, and there was a high likelihood that we were going to be disbanded effectively and reconverted into, uh, regenerated into something new. Simultaneously, I, I made the unpopular decision of reducing the pre-tour leave uh, for the for the lads from two weeks to one. Uh, you recall that, uh, Kev, that was a pretty tough decision to make. Um, and I did that so that I could see the unit before I took it uh, on tour. Um, and then to compound masses, I remember in one of those early days, I visited the headquarters of 19, uh, 19 Brigade, who were the brigade that we were deploying with for a pre-tele brief. And literally, no sooner had I walked into the HQ, but I was effectively ambushed by the chief of staff who informed me that the battery was going to effectively be stripped and split into its component parts. Uh, and the intention was to take the patrols forming, uh, to form the recce troop for 40 Field Regiment Royal Artillery and the other elements uh, of the battery to reinforce the headquarters. And in those days, the roles... Uh, of that, uh, of the other elements to go to the headquarters were, were not clear. It was just you're going to go and and fill jobs. So, John, why did why did a field artillery regiment require a recce troop? Uh, because it wasn't employed in the the field artillery role. It was employed as an infantry ground ground holding uh, battalion uh, role. Um, uh, common, as you recall, in days in Northern Ireland, um, and and. But in those days, that never caused any politics, whereas in Iraq, it, 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 it certainly did. It caused a bit of politics in, its, in itself. The, uh, I think um, it was clear that that ambush by the chief of staff when I walked into the headquarters was, uh, was pre-planned. Um, it, the decision had already been made. Uh, the, the structure of the force laid down for the brigade had already been decided and and we were helpless to prevent it. Uh, I don't recall five regiment offering any counter-argument or, or coming into our defence to keep us a, as an integral unit. Um, and and I, I, don't, I don't really believe that the superior headquarters, one our brigade, had done anything to support us either. However, you know, I always look at those opportunities as moment um, as as moments to to exploit um, for our own good, and this proved to be no exception. I mean, Kev, you'll recall our tour in uh, the Balkans in in the nineties was the same. We we you know we went for one reason, and we did we did a lot of other work, and we added value, and so I applied the same. The same mentality to to this, to be honest. However, we didn't know it at the time, so it, it was hard to stomach. Uh, and you can't help being winded uh, when you first deploy because you know you're not going in the capacity that you thought you were. 
Um, and because no one knew really how Telic was going to evolve, uh, evolve those those early days were really quite heady and and quite crazy because nothing panned out the way it was. Um, you know, we anticipated it was going to. It's in just that vibrator, which of course in freeze path offered no defence of the battery when, when we're looking at these rerolls for Telic, which is the current theme. I think we've, we as we discussed throughout its history. Um, I think the regiments, five reg and the gunners, perhaps never fully understood what we are, what we could offer at the time, and what we do offer today. Likewise, I think one Art brigade, which owned the regiments, um, struggled as well. I think they were more equipment orientated than maybe they were patrol or STA. And um, if you compare this to one for eight, which is fully supported by three commando and two nine regiments. Um, who know how to exploit its capabilities? They they really do look after it better, yeah. perhaps. Um, uh, our regiments have looked after four seven three. Yeah, so um, I suppose once we were deployed in, into our various components, uh, me and my tech established um, a deep brigade deep cell, which in modern language would be more aligned to a, a soft effects. Uh, cell, as there was no lethal or kinetic targeting taking place, certainly at the brigade level. Um, my uh, and my patrols had vanished down to Basra with uh, 40 Regiment. Uh, well, sorry to interrupt you, mate. Yeah. Can you just cover for Lester's main and all us what you mean by soft effects? So, um, I, when we talk about effects, we talk about trying to achieve something. So, you know, Delivering uh, explosive ordnance is an effect to um, to achieve a greater objective, which is either to destroy an enemy or uh, you know or close something down. Soft effects are are non-lethal, so we would go out and you would identify um, something that we would want to achieve, and the best way to deliver the effect, I if you wanted to gain the support of the local populace. Uh, you would do it in a positive way. And I can give you an example. Um, we used to transit past Basra University quite quite a lot, and we discovered that um, British military had decided to remove the generator from the university, giving it no power. Um, and so our, our job was to change that and try to restore power by giving them a, a, a generator. I can't remember if it was succeeding or not. And the effects of that would have been positive uh, because it was next to Gama Alley, which, uh, as you know, from the top end of Basra was quite a hotbed of insurgency. Um, and so that's soft effects. Thanks, John. Cheers. Um, the, um, so I, we created that cell and my other two commanders embedded themselves into other areas. Uh, one of those was CIMIC, uh, which is civil military sort of cooperation. And again, you'll know, okay, we did that in the 90s when we were in the Balkans and it, yeah. it allowed us to get to places that normal ordinary troops couldn't do because you had a legitimate reason to to get into the weeds of, of towns and, uh, and areas. And again, it made for really good in gathering opportunities for uh, yeah. uh, for our unit. Now, forgive me, I'm going to focus on the work of me and my tech over this time, as I think it was the result of what we did that actually enabled us to exploit an opportunity that I believe created the future for the battery. And all you have to do is look at the, the history of the battery from 2003 onwards and the great effects that the troops and the patrols did at the front end. And I think it was this moment that allowed it in many ways. Now, my team had carte blanche back in 2003 to do really what we wanted and we spent the majority of our time doing what the, the battery does best um, and we effectively went deep 
And while the brigade and UK as a whole were focused purely on Basra City and looking inwards into the town with the priority of creating the, the new police force and, and, and the security infrastructure, we spent a lot of time uh, on the border. Uh, and we observed a total empty canvas uh, along the entire length uh, of that border. Uh, the battalions, whose areas uh, area of operations covered these these border areas, paid occasional trips out there. And in fact, we went on a few occasions with some of their recce platoons, uh, but they were, and it's no criticism, they were overstretched. And so were routinely pulled in to support operations in the city. Um, as I say, we discovered a total porous border with real many signs of, of rat lines that were running from Iran into into Iraq, and um, whether that was through the Shalamcha border crossing point itself and all the way up up to and through uh, Maysan. Um, it was quite astounding, really, that the border infrastructure had completely been removed. I mean, everything from buildings through to cabling, vehicles, uh, communication infrastructure, you name it, it had all gone. And I recall asking the CIVSEC, so the civil secretary, the man who controlled the purse strings for multinational division southeast, what funds uh, could help could be made available to help us re-establish some of some form of Iraqi presence uh, at those key points where we had identified some rat lines, uh, and that was early on. If, it made me giggle actually because I remember the CIVSEC just saying basically you could give us £20,000 <laughs> is what they offered and it just showed not only the priority of what the UK placed on anything outside the centre of Basra but it probably showed their lack of understanding of what the border was I mean £20,000 was the equivalent of a Hilux truck and we were talking hundreds of kilometres of, of hostile terrain um, and it, it just shows you the short-sightedness as because it was those rat lines that were established straight away in 2003 that fed the supply of ammunition uh, and specialist skills uh, into the insurgency that crippled us years later. And, and there were two main events uh, that I think, two specific events that changed the battery's future direction dur during this tour after that. Just before you go on to that, John, it's interesting that two points that you bring up is this lack of strategic thought, which I think is a hallmark of Iraq for both Americans and the Brits. They had no, they got there, they kicked Saddam Hussein out, and then they had no clue what they wanted to do. You know, they disbanded the army with no thought of what that meant, and they had no strategic direction. And you also mentioned Mesan province, which very later on in the campaign developed into a violent hotspot for the insurgency. And uh, most soldiers are well aware of Alamara, which is the administrative capital region. It's in that area that Johnson Bahari won his VC and Brian Wood also won his MC during the Battle of Danny Boy. Yes, and we can add one more. If you remember the uh, Battle of Majar al-Kabir, which was in on the 24th of June 2003, when the RMP-6 were were brutally killed. Uh, and I mean, um, I remember literally, we were in the ops room that morning, literally just signing out to go on patrol up you know up to nearer that area uh, when that happened uh, and it's quite um quite strange i live on an estate which has a memorial to ben hyde one of the rmps because uh, he worked before he joined the army he worked at a b and q depot which now no longer exists uh, and the entrance on the estate is called ben hyde way in in memory of him so yeah there's quite a sort of a, a poignant link there for me in particular 
I suppose, so going back to that, the two occasions, the first one of those was the encroachment of Iranian border forces into territory that had effectively previously been Iraq. And if you remember, that part of the border had been hotly contested between those two sides during the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, the, the, the terrain was still bitterly marked with the, uh, you know, the scars of that, that those eight years of, of fighting. And um, the, um, um, this was effectively what we'd seen was along that imposed line of the drained marshlands east of Maginot Island. Um, we were we were patrolling that area uh, one day, um, and we came and you can see on the map where it, 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 there's a literally a, a ninety degree angle in the map, and it's a it's an artificial line that had been formed after the Iran Iraq War. Well, we were a, a patrolling that area and came across Iranian forces who had made, who'd clearly made the most of that lack of any Iraqi or coalition presence and had effectively up sticks and moved six kilometres into Iraq from their established border positions. And these border positions were identifiable by the, the border towers. Um, and they had established quite a good defensive position uh, on, a, on a ridge line. And it was clear that that position was temporary, but they had definitely, you know, section and crusoe weapons in place uh, and were clearly continuing to, to fortify them. And we visited a number of times uh, and we, to, you know, to gather more intelligence, but the headquarters and the brigade were pretty interested when we went back and, and, and briefed them of what we'd seen, which was astounding when you think about it. We were we were liable, we were legally responsible for this territory and we had given it away to uh, to Iran. And the, the more worrying thing was we weren't bothered. Now, we revisited that place a number of times um, and uh, an opportune conversation with other elements within our base from the US who were more intelligence-based um, suddenly changed all that. Uh, and before long, that issue became centre stage and really political. You know, I was dragged into the headquarters at MND Southeast and was having to brief the chief of staff in person. Uh, and I remember suddenly the... Uh, I, mean, I remember it was quite funny uh, because we suddenly realised it had gone from no interest to strategic interest. Um, I was briefing in the headquarters to the chief of staff and I had uh, the team back out relaising the targets just to make sure that what we were saying was absolutely the truth because suddenly realised so they were out literally relaising them uh, and I was getting the SMSs to say, yeah, you, you're good to go. The information you're about to brief is correct. So that was quite funny. The... Uh, the process resulted in, actually, after a long time, and I remember there was one patrol where we actually took one of our American colleagues with us to show him because he didn't believe it. And it resulted in the diplomatic effort persuading the Iranians to, to pull back. Uh, and its forces went back to its established line. It is worth noting, um, if you think of what you said, Colin, about that strategic plan of where you wanted to go. Yeah. That Ten years later, I went back to Iraq as a, as a civilian briefly with a, a security company uh, and that piece of land that Iran had moved into is now one of the single largest oil deposits in the region, uh, the Majnoon oil fields and that provides the majority of the nation's wealth and if you think about had we not done what we'd done 
the wealth and the entire strategic mission of putting Iraq back on its feet and being financially independent wouldn't have been possible because the money would have been drawn into Iran rather than Iraq. And do you reckon that was a deliberate attempt? The Iranians, they knew the value of that land and they were trying to sort of encroach on it in order to seize that for themselves? Yes, I do. In hindsight, we didn't know that at the time. But when I went back uh, in, in 2012 uh, as a civilian and looked at the area, it was like, well, how convenient. Because uh, Iran could have moved in in any part of that border, but it chose to move in that particular part. Uh, and if, if anyone who works in the oil and gas industry in that part of the world or the security industry, they'll know the most new oil fields. Uh, and, it, you know, that's exactly where it was. Um, so, yeah, it, I don't believe it was a coincidence. And um, so what that did, it exposed the fault in the UK's military structure and, and its composition in theatre. And I remember having numerous conversations with the chief of staff and, and expressed those concerns and to the brigade commander um, in that they had no formation level eyes or ears to look beyond that close battle uh, in Basra whenever anything went, went wrong. And things were always going wrong. You know, we had the... There were lots of strikes and demonstrations and blockades of the oil transiting through, and we were we were getting excited with the troops of, of the Iraqis bringing oil down the Shatel Arab waterway. And if there was an incident at a petrol station because there was a shortage of fuels, the troops were going into lockdown, into static posts, and and the brigade went blind every single time. And and so that was that was the point. Yeah, they. Looking at the, the Tele campaign, and obviously when you, when you look in the past and you look, you review it. Tele was the war fighting phase. Everything else is going to be a quick stabilisation, quick rebuild, and quickly out. We were never going to be there for a long time. And I imagine that the mindset was, it was a plaster fix, get out, leave a leave a, a government that's good enough in place, and move away. And it never happened. But I think the other the, the trend that we're starting to see the, the, the army at the time is that specialist reconnaissance capabilities didn't seem to exist or be phased out or forgotten about and had to be reinvented. Skills that we already had, but we'd lost. We saw this in Bosnia um, and that led to the formation of the DRU, which Colin was involved in. Why do you think that the British Army, who has these skills, allowed them to lapse and then move, you know, identified that they needed it again? I think uh, that's a really good question. And I think it's uh, I think it's twofold, really, or primarily twofold. One, I think, is that um, we, we like to pride ourselves in, in the British military that we learn uh, and that we evolve our learning and, and we keep up with, you know, the lessons that we pick up from previous occupations, uh, previous tours and the like. And I just think it's a lack of understanding as to what those specialist recon capabilities can offer. Uh, and we forget it in peacetime because, um, you know, what value does it provide on on, on an exercise or on day-to-day routine of military? And again, so we learn it every time on every operation we go on to because that value is suddenly is magnified. And then I think there is increasingly uh, a view, and I think it was there to see on Telic, uh, that technology trumps all uh, and that we forget the qualitative nature uh, and the value that the human eye has over the digital lens. Um, and, you know, the, the push for digitization is, um, and, and the technical solution, because it also removes the soldier from the field and reduces the likelihood of, of, of fatalities and having to bring your injured and your dead home. 
Yeah, that's a great point. There's always every now every operation you deploy, and there's that how will it affect the public back home when they see hearses going through Wooden Bassett or soldiers at Headley Court minus legs and arms? So, yeah, I think that's absolutely a great point, John. Yeah. I think the, the second event, uh, and I think this was the trigger, if I'm honest, um, this was caused by the death of British personnel in Basra. And, and they weren't the first, because we already remember that in June, you know, we'd lost so post-war war fighting. You know, we'd lost the RM, the six from the RMP in June, um, and this was August, if I remember rightly. Um, our, as with our ability to move freely, we we travelled through Basra extensively as a, as a small team, and we observed how the UK and coalition forces were just setting patterns, travelling through the same roads at the same time. There was no discipline, there was no change, there was no disrupting the routine to confuse the enemy. And without being directed to do so, my team and I undertook a, a series of threat assessments at the key sites around the city with the aim of convincing the brigade to impose route restrictions and, and putting force protection measures that would ultimately protect us. But it ran counter to the, the collective view at the time that, that Basra was safe. Now, these areas of concerns all had spot names. As the, the military map had, area had been overlaid with uh, colours, spot, spot colours and numbers, and that made it easier to refer to locations. We'd undertaken a number of these, and we were submitting reports uh, to the brigade on a case-by-case basis. Again, no one was telling us to do it. We were doing it when we had time. Uh, and our recommendation, our continued recommendation to the brigade was to create a brigade surveillance and, and recce capability. Uh, but at that time, we were just getting no traction at all until the day a number of uh, UK personnel were unfortunately killed in, a, in an incident which was at or very close to one of those areas that we had undertaken one of these uh, threat assessments. Now, if I'm honest, it really is harder than I thought uh, to speak about this because one of the individuals, I think there were three that were killed, uh, he was a friend of mine. And, and even to this day, I can't help but think that if we'd done things differently or if we'd carried out that threat assessment earlier or had been directed to or we'd convinced the brigade and the headquarters to change those routes earlier so putting better force protection measures to to close roofs down on a, on a day-to-day basis to, to confuse the enemy then maybe those men and, and my friend would still be alive today so it's a bit ironic really because you look back to that campaign and there's a lot of the british army at the time saying that this is our speciality because we've spent you know 30 years in northern ireland but a lot of what you mentioned there john was routine operations and force protection in Northern Ireland. So it's amazing that on the one hand, we're trumping how great we were in Northern Ireland, and then at the operational level, we completely forgot all those operational force protection matters that kept people alive. Mm. And, you know, it's always controversial, but no way, when we can talk about this a wee bit later on, but again, Iraq was the first time that we suffered a defeat. And the politicians can trump it up any way we like, but I, I personally think we were defeated on the ground there. Politicians won't admit it, generals won't admit it, but we left with our tail between our legs. Well, I, I think you're 100% right. Um, we we did, you know, we stated our rep, we, we claimed our reputation on, on our time in Northern Ireland, uh, and we ignored it immediately. We went to Iraq at great cost. I mean, I actually did four tours in uh, Iraq. I went back in 2006 when we really were having it handed to us. Um, and I went back again in 2008 after Charge of the Nights. Uh, and I 
uh, we pulled back in 2006 and 2007 in, into the into the cob and the fobs, and then in 2008 I went back and I was mentoring um, an Iraqi joint headquarters in the Shuttle Arab Hotel, where previous you know military units had once occupied, and then I went back again uh, to. Baghdad this time in 2011 was one of the last UK personnel to leave. We left on something like the 22nd of December. Uh, by that time, we were part of the NATO training mission, training the Sanders in the Sands and the Officer Academy. So I saw the whole the whole span right from the start, right till the end. And I, I agree with you, we were defeated. Um, so, yeah. So what happened when you finally got the ear of the brigade, if you like? How did you then move on from that point? Well, um, it, you're right, Adson. That's the term I would use. We did. We we had the year of the brigade, uh, and our ideas suddenly got traction. And I remember getting pulled into uh, the office with the chief of staff that morning, and it really didn't take long for the patrols to be pulled from their role as recce troop for Forty Regiment to create what. Uh, the precursor to what effectively became the BRF, the Brigade uh, Recon Force. Uh, the CO40 Regiment, as you can imagine, uh, opposed uh, the move uh, as he knew the quality of the assets he had with our troops uh, that he had at his disposal. Um, but it was clear that our argument was overwhelming. We did have a sort of a gentlemanly con- conversation, and we, I remember saying to, to him that, you know, nothing personal, but I want them back. And I remember him saying nothing personal, but... I want to keep them. Um, and he lost. Now, he's a three-star general. So, <laughs> so, and I'm not. Um, and as, But as soon as, we, as soon as we got the go, uh, I sent some of the personnel back to the UK to undertake photography courses and worked with the SO3G4, the brigade, who was a real ally. And again, it was one of those things where, as a battery and individuals in the battery, you identify the best way to deliver effects and one of those ways was to find allies and i honestly think that this captain he he made it for us because he just cut through the red tape and he got us all the kit that we needed included high spec cameras and l96 rifles uh, and and other kits and he did it uh, he bypassed so much and it just happened quickly and so you can imagine with all of a sudden pulling together the capability, the equipment coming in, uh, troops going back to UK to do training. It didn't take long before this became quite a political uh, topic. And so we immediately started to get visits, including from UK-based chain of command. I remember the one Art Brigade commander came to visit us, as well as uh, organisations such as the now defunct COTAT, uh, what was it, Covert Observational Training Advisory Team, Um now, I always remember they came in and tried to argue that they were the subject matter expert in this in this role, uh, even though, to be honest, they had no theatre experience. They were very Northern Ireland orientated. And regardless of this, um, this was the moment the battery needed and we, we exploited it to the full, if I'm honest. Uh, we retained the capability throughout the remainder of Talik 2 through Talik 3 and then handed over to our reserve colleagues in the Honourable Artillery Company for Talik 4. So I think we cemented that capability and, and made it our own. Um, and that, by cementing ourselves in that surveillance and reconnaissance role, it gave us the launch pad for, for the years to come through the whole of Talik uh, and, and into Herrick. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, however, I don't. It, it wasn't that simple, if I'm honest, on, on returning to the UK at the end of Tele 2. Um, all battles were still there and the new ones appeared i must admit i did feel that the demise of the battery which was so apparent in that letter from six months earlier was no longer being viewed with the same urgency that it that it once had but that pressure was i believe still there as some of the old entrenched opinions about the battery continued to exist throughout the regiment and throughout the royal regiment as as well as the wider army i, th- I think we talked about this at the other ones. I think that, that continued through. What I did find, though, is um, other arms appreciated the skill set the battery had more than the gunners. Yes. They, they understood it more. Yeah. So they would employ you and use you better. Yeah. I think it was gunners, yeah. yeah. I think what you had to do, though, is and overcome that scepticism. Yeah. And, infantry, and, and quite rightly, they're looking at gunners and thinking, what the hell are these guys? Yeah. What can they bring? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then I did think that was a trend, but I did find that everyone I worked with was non-gunner, sort of got it before the gunners. The gunners, technical and let's call it traditional gunner skills, mm. found new skills sometimes a bit challenging for them to take in. But I think yeah. our patrol, as a patrol battery, we were not technical. We just didn't fit the gunner mould and probably still don't in the true sense. I think the, the Royal Artillery, by its nature, is a very conventional organisation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I agree. Yeah, but you which is strange, seeing in the First World War, they were the ones flying the airplanes and doing spotting and observing and using all the imaginative ways of technical to get the you know the guns to fire more accurately and then we've moved backwards into a safe zone, perhaps. Yeah. So, what were, so, John, what were the main lessons learned then during this period? How did you apply them to him? Improving the batch's training and skills. Um, it, it was clear, there was no there was no time to rest, Kev. To be honest, when we got back, so and it was clear straight away that um, uh, as soon as we got back, the um, we started looking throughout the entire spectrum of what we did, and it was clear that the battery structure, its operational purpose, its equipment holdings, and career paths were had simply been neglected. Uh, by the regiment and, and indeed the Royal Regiment for many years and I suppose if you looked at us at face value at what our base equipment was uh, we we were obsolete um, but I suppose I and anyone else who had an eye to the current and future needs of what we wanted certainly going through Iraq and Afghanistan we were anything but and, and Telic 2, 3 and 4 certainly proved that within days of returning from post to a leave and I found this 
just astounding. We were we were told to support a brigade with whom we had no relationship, um, uh, and we were being asked to provide fire support teams uh, for a testex, a tesex. Um, and it was, in, in my eyes, I suppose, a deliberate ploy. At that time, it was, in my eyes, a deliberate ploy to divert what had been immensely positive feedback from um, a very successful tour on our part um, and to put us back into the old ground. And, and I, I accept that, in hindsight, I may have been a little paranoid, but but it was different. The environment was different back in 2004. Certainly the heated discussion I'd had with the 2IC and the CO at that time suggested otherwise. My priority was to capitalise on, on the lessons of Telic and to restructure the battery in order to meet the future demands that had become clear during Telic 2. We had to be lighter, we had to be more agile and we had to provide the human surveillance, again going back to that qualitative uh, value um, and that recce capability that we knew that was missing in in the UK military sort of uh, structures, and um, I had to start by changing the career structure. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. We were in a position that I simply could not legitimately promote bombardiers to sergeant. Because, and I recall having a conversation with the regimental career managing uh, management officer telling who was telling me to look the other way as it was simply too difficult as we had no qualified uh, a course attributed to to us at that level that would allow us to promote a bombardier into a sergeant in the trade of special observer that the course that we'd relied on was was one deep uh, and it no longer existed was that the old Army Combat Survival Instructor at Hereford John that was a throwback to the Stay Behind role. Yep, that that's that's the one. And, and it had gone. It, it wasn't there anymore. And so um if you looked at the crewman was it crewman two thousand that the yeah. or whatever it was, the, yeah, the, yeah. the the career structure. Um you know, it was a ACSI was the course to promote from bombardier to sergeant and and it didn't exist, so we couldn't put anyone on it, and so we were we were looking around for other courses, but the special observer trade didn't recognise any others. So, uh, and you can see that 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 career structure name Crewman two thousand. It seems it highlights why we we were invented because we were more in a, a dismounted infantry style unit. Hundred percent. And Crewman is all about running around in vehicles and doing doing courses that were really not suited to what we did. Absolutely. Yeah, te- technical artillery. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And what was the solution then, John? It was it was simple for me because well, it was a quick fix solution. It really was, and it was a simple one for me at the time. Um, and that was for me to align the special observer trade to the OP ACK trade. Uh, and I know it was it was contentious at the time, um, but that would at least give us the formal ability to to queue fires because everything that we'd done up to now effectively with qualified OP ACKs was on good grace because it wasn't linked into our career path. Um, uh, and so, you know, that had been taken for granted. Uh, and again, when he went back to the CO, he said, I want you to go and provide uh, JTACs, uh, wrong, um, you know, FSTs for, for this Tezex. It was like, on, on what on what basis? You know, we've just been on a tour for six months in a surveillance and reconnaissance role. I'm not formally required to, to staff FSTs. Um, yet you're asking me to put out FSTs in support of a brigade on a Tezex that we've had no familiarisation or training with. Um and so at least if we'd had that within the formal career path, it would have made it easier. Well, you uh, sound about loss of reputation for going on that Tezex and maybe not performing as well since you hadn't been 
yeah. train prop. Was that your main concern? Yes, it was. It was it was the main concern. And I have to admit, because of the frame of mind I was in, I felt it was it was deliberate and I thought it was a it was deliberate in order to undermine the success because the, the success, the bow wave of compliments and the good reports that we were getting and the commanding officer, we had an ally in him. He was singing our praises and, you know, we know where he, he, he went through his career and the feedback was really positive. And my, my attitude was, why would you do this at this time? Why would you not want us to, to cement that those values and that those lessons and to, to take us forward why do you want to take us back to the old battles that we've been having and i know the battery had had in 2002 um so yeah i it's been a bit of a stand-up stand-up fight with the regimental hierarchy actually to not go on that and um so i i, I went further than linking it to the opiac trace so that was the career path for the 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 trade of special observer but i went further to qualify more of the battery into jtac and sniper qualifications because i wanted to provide that ability for our patrols to provide that sensor to shoot a link uh, you know to make us a complete integral capability um, but the restructure itself was was more complex but one thing i did know straight away was that what needed to be done was that we had to make the battery lighter at the rear in terms of its command and control and its logistic support slice that backed up the patrols because for mine, it didn't matter if you, based on the traditional concept of operations, it didn't matter whether it was one patrol or 12 patrols that went, you had this huge command and control and logistics slice that would follow. And we had to become more modular because I think that was one of the reasons why the battery didn't go on Telic 2. The bang for your buck that you gave from what you were going to send at the front end was not matched by, was out, outweighed by, you know, the, the mass of logistics support that you sent and, and spaces were tight. And so we had to become more modular. Um, and uh, so once we, you know, that, that needed a complete overhaul. And I'll be the first to say, I, I might have started that journey, but in no way finished it. And I think it was years until greater certainty was given in terms of, you know, the the, the the, the place that the battery has on on the military orbit, and it was the BCs that followed me that really picked up that mantle and 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 continued. Um, I think, in part, this for me, this uh, this struggle has always been due to the fact that our battery has been, and you've raised it earlier on, Colin. We've been an anomaly to the Royal Artillery, uh, and they have, in my opinion, never really truly appreciated the capability that they had and still have in that battery and its soldiers and and they were happy to use them uh, as we've seen in in northern ireland as we've seen in the balkans and we've seen in iraq and afghanistan but that conceptual that intellectual and that financial investment has always been lacking um and i did <laughs> i found it strange in 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 2004 um was spent focus. I was spent focusing on this, while at the same time I was I was having to address what what had always been an issue for the lads, uh, which was the colour of the berry. Um, and I I appreciate I did not give that issue the attention that the lads certainly felt it deserved. But for me, it really wasn't the priority at the time. Although I, I accept many didn't see it, I, I probably could have communicated it better, and 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 showed them that. There was a, a sequence of priorities that we had to do in order to cement the, 
the future of the battery and that for me that the very although important and now that the lads have that i think it helps separate us from the badge more and it identifies us for what we are but at just at that time in 2004 it seemed to be such an important issue for the for the lads but it, you know if, if it was kind of like if you knew what i knew you know we, we would put it in in a priority order and as i say i'll probably in hindsight i probably could have communicated that a lot better i think it's hard job I think it's hard to communicate any of these because if you start sounding one about all the issues, mm. we're all drop down anyway because you feel like, well, we're not going to be in six months' time. I don't know why I'm, you know, what, yeah. what this unit could did, could disband. And she can't share that, unfortunately. And, yeah. You know, that's, the, as I say. I've always thought of these Yeah, tough the top, John. The top. And Chris Lincoln-Jones brought this up in his podcast. Yeah. He said, the more, I think the phrase you use is something like, the more, uh, the best, better trained, the better motivated your troops, the harder they are to manage and lead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've always said, I've always said something similar. I, I've always said it's just, just when I was the BC, just give me the opportunity to put my soldiers in the field and you will, they speak for themselves and then yeah. bring them back into barracks. It's just, it's just stand by <laughs> for the BSM to uh, in barracks. Yeah, it's an absolute nightmare, but a, an absolute delight. And I think, um, yeah, I, I'll always something you just said, Kev. I remember when you and I were communicating when I was in India, and you were, you know, I was telling I'd been picked up on the BC, and you were you were drip feeding me some information, and then I I came back on day one, and we had a chat, and then you laid it all bare, uh, and I was like, well, why didn't you? Why didn't you tell me this before I came? And you went, well, you never would have come. <laughs> <laughs> you already. And I, you know, I started off as a gun at the battery, and when, as you go up, you get to know more. Yeah. The more you know, the less you can tell, tell because yeah. you can't tell the blokes why. You've got to do something. You just don't do it because there's so much pressure from the main office and further, and, you know, you end up having that conversation when you have to drift over to see the adjutant or the TNC yeah. for that conversation where I didn't get invited in for coffee or something just to be told off again for someone <laughs> else and his mistake. I I spent many an hour in the court masters and yeah. offices to, to take a bollock in for somebody else's choice. Yeah. Hey mate. That's that's the line. As you just said to join tough for the top. I know tough for the top. Tough for the I was just gonna say talk to Danny Cado last on the last part that we talked about all this groundwork, I mean, the, the courses that the battery do now, very well established. They're, they're doing the same courses as the infantry, so all that credibility that we're always struggling with perhaps in the past, mm. we haven't got that anymore because if you can complete junior and senior bracket, yeah. then you're as good as the infantry. Yeah. If you're doing the light record course, you're as good as anyone else in, in, in the armed forces. So there's no more, oh, you're only a gunner. Well, actually, I'm a gunner with all these infantry qualifications at yeah. least, and I'm also a specialist. Yeah. So actually, I think it's taken a long time to evolve to that point, but perhaps we've now reached that point where the all-arms look at these courses as their premier courses Yes, and 473 are on them. Yeah. It's just trying to get the gunners to accept that we've got now gunners on the premier infantry and armoured reconnaissance courses yeah. and... So we've got some really quality soldiers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the only thing for me to say after that is my, my time in command at the battery was cut short 
really by six months as the the two I see at the time left at uh, very short notice he resigned his commission and I suppose as the senior VC there because others had come in behind me and other batteries I ended up uh, having to step in to fill the gap so that was it I I'd moved on yeah shortly after that so, so in, in a short paragraph what's the future for the estate patrols as you see today uh I suppose I suppose for me, yeah, suppose for me is to, in my current world where I work, we work on the principles of integrated emergency management and the first step is anticipation. So in my current job, the first phase of what I do is anticipate. And I think the same principle applies for the battery. We, We, If we think deep, we have to conceptually think deep so that the future for the battery is to stay ahead of the game. Uh, yeah, by staying yeah. ahead of the game, we we increase our chances of survival into the, the you know the modern future army, however that looks. That's a great point. I think yeah, we didn't yeah. do that before. Up to that period, nearly two thousands. I yeah. think we just sat back on our laurels a little bit, yeah, maybe, and, and didn't anticipate. And you, and you fought the wars you've been in, not the ones that you couldn't see, because there was no uh, say support or money for you to say, well, actually, I'd like to develop this route, mm. this equipment for this potential. Because yeah. other people were, if you can't bring everyone on board, then no one's going to invest in it. Yeah, I agree. So then we meet, we meet the more interesting, we meet the, the more interesting part as well. That would be <laughs> Desert Island Dicks, which is always my favourite part. Um, so, John, your favourite book, film and luxury item. Right. So uh, you made me think long and hard about this, actually. So my, my favourite military book has always been always been Stalingrad by Anthony Beaver. And I suppose it, it is when, when you read that book, you just see the enormity of, of you know, warfare and that aspect of World War Two in particular and the sheer size of the operations. Uh, and I, I mentioned it earlier on. I undertook four tours of Iraq. Uh, and I recall in particular my tour in 2006 when I was an acting lieutenant colonel um, and I was SO1 plans in the headquarters and I was heavily involved in the planning of Operation uh, Sindabad. Um, and you, again, you can Google that. And its predecessor to that was Operation Salamanca. Um, pretty bad name, didn't really go down well with the Iraqis. Um, I <laughs> wasn't my name. I recall trying to, I, I can't, I'll never forget, I was trying to create capacity within the multinational division in order to deliver an effect of, of Sindabad, which was to, uh, you know, spread security through the streets within a, a structured way of bringing in military capability to establish the security in order you could fill it from the back with uh, other elements of development and reassurance and business. Um, and throughout that entire force structure, when you cut it down to the bone, we only had 11 spare multiples. Now, for, for those that don't know, a multiple is, what, 12, 12 people. So we had about 132 spare soldiers that you could actually play with. Which which is one company effective. Basically, just a company puss. Uh, and so multinational division south was, if you wanted to deliver an effect, you had a company. And here we were as a divisional headquarters planning operations. When, when you compared it and people in the headquarters tried to compare it with the US op together forward and op together forward too. And I was traveling up to uh, the US uh, headquarters at Alfor Palace every week for planning groups about what we were doing. And you talked about earlier on, Colin, about the loss of reputation. I assure you by 2006, the UK had lost the reputation of the Americans. We were 
we were laughing stock. And I remember going up to Al Four Palace to brief what we were doing, and they kind of just, yeah, it was like, thanks for coming. Yep, and that was it. Um, (laughs) So for a professional officer, that must have been quite hard for you to take, John. It was. Yeah, it was it was immense because I had to go up there every week. I got onto the C one thirty, flew up to Baghdad, briefed, uh, yeah, and it was. And then I remember oh, we we took that plan, and I with the commander and the chief of staff, we briefed. Um, yeah, I remember briefing the president Maliki uh, of what we were going to do uh, and how we were going to do it. And he uh, and I, I'd been speaking a lot at that time to the uh, headquarters of Ten Iraqi Army Division. Uh, but it was doing it on a personal basis. And um, I remember when Maliki looked across to the GOC of Ten Iraqi Army Division and said, you know, how much of the UK, you know, d- uh, collaborated with you on the planning? And, um, and the Iraqi general just went, nothing. You know, we haven't done anything. And so we ended up having to go back and completely rewrite it. And it was a lot more, you know, giving in terms of money and development and the security with our company was was minor and i suppose when you look at what we were doing in iraq and you compare it to you know if you read uh, anthony bieber's book we're playing as it well even northern ireland joined mm. twenty thousand soldiers in northern ireland at the height of the troubles yes you're right, absolutely yeah and, yeah. Um, yeah and we had one brigade to cover one brigade to cover the entire uh basra i suppose my uh, my favorite war movie if i'm really honest it's not one of your grand ones it is the 1988 falklands movie tumble down that stars Colin Firth, not many people probably uh, remember that movie, actually. But I suppose I was fortunate when I was at Sanders to have um, my colour sergeant as a... He was a flank company, Scots Guards, um, and he was one of the ones that made it to the top uh, of Tumbledown. And so as an officer cadet going through Sanders, listening to his stories and his recollections of that war, which were the first of my conscious the first military conflict of my conscious memory made it really real for me. So I enjoyed the movie when I, I watched it years later uh, because I could see it from another... I saw it from another angle, having listened to the stories of, of my colour sergeant. And I, I'll never forget, it's really strange. There was There's one line in that movie that Colin Firth says, and, and he's he's starting to open fire on the Argentinians for the first time, and he, he speaks to himself, and he, he goes, targets fall when hit. And it and it kind of indicates that how that training automates his actions um, as he sees the enemy fall when hit by a shot, and and you can see that's the whole purpose of training, isn't it? It's to automate your yeah, your process. Memory. Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me of an incident during Telic Two, and it was on one of those that I can't remember the day, but we were driving north of Basra to go to the border, um, and we ended up in it was an accidental. We ended up in the crossfire that what seemed to turn out to be a, a dispute in Garma Ali. And there were a number of uh, heated exchanges of uh, automatic fire and that you could tell that they were 50 cal. And rounds were passing really quite close to us. And it got to a point we caused us to deploy into a defensive position into into the trough in the ground uh, so we could call in the contact. Because uh, we didn't know at that time that it wasn't aimed at us because uh, they were passing quite close. And I remember having to use my, that little, you know, the original Nokia one that, what's yeah. his name, that comedian used to 
make his uh, joke on uh, with the ringtone. And I sent my contact report over that mobile phone because uh, the radios weren't working. And I sense it as if it was by the radio. And even though you didn't have to depress the press on the mobile phone, I still said over at the end of sending the contact report. <laughs> and I still I still laugh about that. And I, that makes me, that, that reminds me, because I remember travelling up and down between the, the coalition operating base at the airport up to Alamara. Mm. And there was hardly any comms coverage. Mm. And your last resort was that mobile phone. Yeah. And I believe you used to have to go through an MOD operator. Yes. Yes. Who, yeah, 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 yeah. Who yeah. connects you to the ops room. And uh, back yes. to right. Who sounded as though she was a little old lady knitting, <laughs> didn't she? Was it the same one? Every time I spoke to that lady, it was as if she was knitting quietly in a corner on a very old leather chair. It's, it's, it's the abs- <laughs> that to me just sums up the absurdity yeah, of that. Absolutely. Hello, Emily. Yes, can you put me through to Alamara Ops Room, please? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. It still makes me laugh. And I suppose my my favourite luxury item, and you're probably going to laugh at me, because uh, uh, I, I am a massively different person to the the, the you know the guy I was back in the nineties and and. Can't get an old John. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm fifty two. Uh, I suppose now, yeah, I am 52, but my my knees, courtesy of 473 battery, are more like 85. Uh, and they are. I name my body. I name myself according. I age myself according to the parts of the body I'm referring to. <laughs> so I am 52. My knees are 85. My shoulders are about in the 60s. My heart is probably still about 21-year-old. My brain, head, probably about 14. And uh, <laughs> so, But I, I'm a father of four now and a husband to, you know, an amazing woman who sort of put me on the right track. And my one luxury item would be a photo of my family nothing more nothing less i fully support that mate i'm very lucky yourself so if kev's still young free and single for any ladies listening <laughs> if you want to write in he's he's available for i don't know pole dancing kid i've got a niece of a 21 year old and i think we'll leave it there before you start describing other body parts <laughs> Thanks, kev. I, just for the record kev i remember you and me Running that route in Bosnia in '96, and you and you and me, uh, if yeah, we ran very similar. I would say like pregnant penguins with a banana squarely inserted. Your knees have been knackered since forever. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my recommendation this week is the Accidental Warrior, which is a book by a guy called Jeffrey Pico, who's an officer in the Hampshire Regiment, and uh, very similar to Sydney Jury, who I talked about the other week, and he was also in the Somerset Light Infantry at the start. Uh, of his army career. So a lot of books written about regiments in World War II focus on the more glamorous units, such as the Parachute Regiment and the Commandos, who actually, and I'm going to get some hate mail in here, who actually spent limited time on ops and also had large gaps between deployments. There was also an argument in World War II that these units sucked in a lot of highly motivated soldiers who were deployed into action by some of the least experienced pilots and ops that delivered limited results. So I'll stand by for a bit of hate mail saying that one. However, the Hampshire's was one of the county regiments that formed the backbone of the British Army in World War II and did a lot of heavy fighting around the world. And ironically, given my comments earlier, um, they also do part in the Arnhem Operation. And something we discussed in the pod a few times is that uh, it took Afghanistan and Iraq, I think, to break the post-Falklands view that only the Marines and Paras were capable of difficult operations under arduous conditions. And arguably this allowed conventional line units to get involved in ops previously reserved for out-of-area specialists and maybe operating at lower levels of ops previously the domain of special forces. And I think really this is vindicated by the formation of the new Ranger battalions and that, you know, that's the way the army's going. So 
The title from this book comes from the fact that he volunteered for the Pay Corps in 1940 and he was initially classified as unfit for frontline service. But later on in the war, the Army changed its fitness requirements and he was graded A1, and this allowed him to apply for a commission, ironically, into the Royal Artillery. And during this process, he was informed that he's too slow, too sleepy, too weak, and too soft for the field artillery, and was posted to an anti-aircraft unit. Uh, and he enjoyed a cushy existence until a shortage of infantry led him to being transferred to the Hampshires, and he landed in Normandy in D-plus-2 and became the OC of a mock platoon. And at the end of '44, he transferred to 7 Hampshires as a rifle platoon commander and remained with them to the war's end. It's a really great account of a section soldier who was turned into an unlikely warrior. And as a gunner, his accounts of deploying the mortar line and MSCs are a real interest. And I'll finish off with a quote from the last chapter that rang a bell for me and is equally applicable, I think, again to the role of SDA patrols. And in that he said, The infantryman is a king of warriors. He lives closer to the enemy than anyone else and can be in almost continual crisis. He lacks the psychological comfort of a large gun, vehicle, ship or similar equipment and he can cling only to his pals and they to him. And the comradeship that rises is very special. It is the brotherhood of those who have mastered themselves and served their team. And I think that's a really great account of any sort of dismounted uh, soldier. So, Kev, what's your choice this week, mate? Yeah, my choice this time is a, a book called MI9, which is uh, from the Second World War. And it's one of the many MI sort of um, groupings that I, I didn't realise there were so many, because everyone knows about MI5, MI6. MI9 was a part of military intelligence, and it was a highly secret department in the War Office. And he had two principal tasks. It was assisting in the escape of Allies POWs held by the, the Germans or Axis forces and helping Allied military personnel, especially down at the airmen, to evade capture after they were shot down and get back to uh, back to the UK or back to friendly, friendly soil. Um, and so I, I, I read it and I thought back to our days in the old stay-behind days where we, we spent a lot of time, preparation and training into escape and evasion, survival, uh, making improvised kits. And obviously we did prone to capture training. We did conduct after capture training. If we were captured, how to survive, how to escape. So it had, a, it had some linkages to that. And also some of the training that we did is some of the same training that was done during the uh, Second World War by these sort of organisations who, who developed the, the rat runs through Europe, either into Spain or into other parts of the firm. Um, the, the non-occupied parts of France and escaped back to the UK to, to fight again. Uh, and one of the, no, the notable people in, in this organisation was a guy called Aaron Eve, who was um, part of the logistics side, but he, when um, he joined it, he was recruited into it. And he was recruited into it because he was the first British officer to escape Colditz, which I never knew about, uh, even, though, even though I've read some books about him when he worked at Nuremberg Trials. And so with all that skill, he come back, he was awarded the MC for his, for his escape from Colditz as his second attempt. And he became a part of MI9 and in the development, originally just in Europe, in bringing back soldiers or airmen, um, providing equipment into, into camps as well, into POW camps, which I was amazed reading about. They had a magician who helped develop um, items that could be disguised and then sent across. Uh, they sent everything via charities, but not the Red Cross, because obviously that would convene the Geneva Convention. What they didn't want was the Germans then to stop all Red Cross parcels. Um, they got toy companies in the UK to help develop hiding silk maps, hiding compasses and such like board games. 
and they were sent across to the POWs as well. And this was further expanded into the Far East and the Middle East as well, uh, different sections, coming under the MI9 banner. And it suggested that the one of the, the head quartermasters, uh, known as Q, was one of the runners for the, and um, obviously the fictional James Bond character, when you go see Q and they get all the fancy little bits and pieces, and some of that was taken from ideas that the MI9 provided. So what they just provided was fantastic escape kits and um, escape chains as well. So obviously they had uh, assistance throughout Europe from French resistance, from French families, so they had great risk themselves. Really good book. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was um, it took me back a little bit to those days when we were we were doing the Cold War part and the Stay Behind piece when we were hoping that somebody would pull us up, feed us, or whatever as we were trying to catch up with armored brigades moving back towards Calais and you were on your fourth with your burger on your back. Knocking through a desolate nuclear wasteland. <laughs> Put the NBC suit and the radio that doesn't work. <laughs> oh, and interesting enough, Harry Neve was a gunner. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. But he, he joined, I can't remember the regiment he joined. Uh, I think he was in the reservists or the TA at the time as an end run engineer and then transferred over and got commissioned as a gunner. And um, killed by, was it? Irish National Liberation Army claimed responsibility uh, when they blew him up. But he was at the, like I say, he was at Newbury Trials as a staff officer there. He wrote a book about that, really good book, if you may read that one. Um, Awarded a DSO, MC, OBE, and a Bronze Star. And killed by Enla and a bloody yeah. under, underneath the House of Commons. What That's it, you? yeah. yeah. So, um, we've come to the end. So, thank you to John. And to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Our email address is at the bottom of the show notes if you want to get in touch. Um, you find us on all the usual social media sources, bits and pieces. As you know, I don't know nothing about that. Um, you can find us on um, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, iTunes. Please share, subscribe. Please give comments as well, um, which, which is really useful. We do read all the comments. And Kev won't know this because he hates social media, but we've had nearly 50 reviews on iTunes and we've got uh, 4.9 out of 5 ratings. So give us a few more then, please, everybody out there. That's it for another episode. Thanks a lot for coming to the podcast. And uh, thanks to the listener for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming at our email social media links at the bottom of the show notes. You can find us in all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. And if you've downloaded some iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review there or anywhere you get a podcast from. And finally, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continued support to the series and offering technical help for his company, ISR. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. 